Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. We just finished uh, talking about getting cops out of schools, police-free schools, uh, with our former guests. And we're going to continue now with our left, left, or leftist panel, a little bit of an abbreviated panel today uh, with two members, Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back, and Ben Nolan, who's on the other side of the border uh, speaking to us from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, doctoral candidate date in poli-sci there. So both welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, back to. And um, let's get right into it because we don't have a lot of time. And I wanted to start off with a topic that Ben had suggested, which is current and all over the mainstream media, and that is vaccines and vaccine distribution. Um, We know that Pfizer made $15 billion last year, and this somehow is not causing a revolution. Why? Ben, weigh in. So what prompted me to propose this as a subject is reports out of the WTO that the bid by India and South Africa, the the bid led by those two countries has been blocked by the wealthy countries, including Canada, for the intellectual property associated with COVID vaccines to be waived to allow them to produce these vaccines domestically in a way that wouldn't make them subject to basically putting more money in Pfizer's pocket. The rationale given for blocking this effort is that waiving this intellectual property would stifle innovation, which maybe makes some intuitive sense if you've read the logic of, you know, the free market, but overlooks the sort of the recent history of vaccine development and production which has seen that the privatization of that sector has actually reduced the capacity to innovate and produce all over the world. And notably in Canada, Trudeau noted recently that Canada used to be able to produce vaccines, but is no longer able to. This is the result of the privatization of that sector, largely and disinvestment from that sector. It has led to all of the labs that were world-renowned 30 years ago, having been either closed or shipped out of the country. And has made Canada very vulnerable. On paper, Canada has bought up rights to something like five times the number of vaccines that are necessary to vaccinate the entire population. But this has not actually borne so much fruit because the countries that are actually producing the vaccines have chosen to prioritize their own populations over passing them along to And now suddenly Canada is the only country to take vaccines from funds that are designed to help developing countries. And so we went from a situation where Canada could have been producing vaccines through these publicly supported institutions to one in which we are like tapping into this pool of vaccines that were meant for the developing world. Uh, We're literally taking vaccines out of the arms of people in poor countries. So Alex, weigh in. Yeah, this is just another example of the totally parasitic uh, nature of the profit motive in capitalism that uh, vaccine production, we're in a you know, 100-year pandemic here. All of the forces of humanity are, should unite to defeat this pandemic. And what you've got is these pharmaceutical companies making billions and billions of profit. They're refusing to remove the intellectual property. They're actually refusing to ramp up production to the mass- maximum possible. They could, every single lab and production facility on the planet should be producing these vaccines, but they're saying no, and they're actually limiting their investment into 
uh, productive capacity because they're not going to need it after uh, the pandemic is over. So they're thinking, well, why should we invest? Actually, if they can create a shortage, they make more profit. That's exactly what's happening. It is scandalous. A socialist system would be run totally differently. Uh, And they say they use these profits to invest. They don't actually. Most of the research is done in publicly funded universities. 90, 95% of the research is done by taxpayers in universities, by scientists. I used to be, uh, my background's in science. People don't do that for a profit. They do, they do, scientists do science because they want to find out about the universe and uh, cure the problems of society and humanity. They, it, this, it's just another example of the dead end of the system of the profit motive being put ahead of the lives of people. We used to have Connaught Labs. Um, Connaught Labs was publicly owned. Jonas Salk you know, gave away his patent for a dollar. I mean, for nothing, essentially. The idea that, that you know, the stuff of life, well, we've already seen this in other instances with Monsanto and other large multinationals, but that the stuff of life can be patented is really quite bizarre and I think criminal. Ben, you wanted to make another point. Yeah, I mean, just to build on what Alex was saying, Oxford originally had committed to making the vaccine it developed publicly available and was talked out of it by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, who are often heralded as these big heroes of vaccination, but whose actual impact on the world is the development and enforcement of this incredibly strict intellectual property regime. And so Oxford signed a deal with AstraZeneca, and now it's basically an entirely for-profit venture. And far less vaccines are going to be produced as a result of it. And meanwhile, we wait. Uh, we wait in, in Canada and we're not alone in waiting. L- let's move on from this topic. Alex, you raised uh, an issue around, uh, and we are all we are all aware of this, uh, that Proud Boys, among many others, has now been designated a terrorist organization. I know federally NDP was pushing for this, so this is kind of a concession move by the Trudeau Liberals. But um, what interests you in this? Well, the amazing thing is the last time I spoke to you, Sherry, was about a month ago. And in in that intervening time, we had the whole storming of the Capitol, the inauguration of Biden. Uh, Everything's happened and it seems like it's forever ago, but we only spoke a few weeks back. Um, But the obviously the Proud Boys and other fascist organisations played a nefarious role in storming the US Capitol, and people want something done about them. Absolutely, that's correct. About leading time to do something about them after you had uh, the, the FBI ignore them and allow them to do that. Actually, uh, cops on Capitol Hill allowed them to come in. We're taking selfies, selfies, and, uh, and then, and the same in Canada how actually Proud Boys have harassed um, uh, socialist activists, uh, members of my organization fight back um, over the number of years. And the police doesn't, they don't care. They absolutely didn't care. Uh, They've been playing an utterly harassing role. So are these people terrorists? Absolutely, they use terror for political ends. Absolutely. How do we manage it? And from this uh, very good incentive to look, we, we should actually take this seriously. Um, How do you actually manage it? The fact is you cannot defeat 
the far right, who are you know, the front line of Blue Lives Matter supporting the state by appealing to those same police to police the far right. Uh, actually, it's been revealed now that the head of the Proud Boys, um, or the other, I guess, is co-head of the Proud Boys, is the Gavin McGuinness, the Canadian one, but the other guy is actually a cop. He's an FBI informant. They had no problem. They, the, the police have got no problem with these uh, far writers. Actually, in um, I oh I forget I forget the name of one one of the cities with a uh, there was a Black Lives Matter movement. The police were referring to groups of Proud Boys as armed friendlies, right? That's how the police view these people: is armed friendlies on their side. So appeal to the police is the wrong way of doing it. You deal with them by mobilizing working class people, oppressed people. They turn up in public. We, you know, they bring out uh, 100 people. We bring out 10,000 people. And that's the way to deal with these uh, people, to appeal to the state that, OK, the Proud Boys are a terrorist organization, but so are the FBI. So is CSIS. They are terrorist organizations and putting the Proud Boy on the terror, terrorist list, it's saying this giving more power to the state. So say more about the FBI and CSIS being terrorist organizations. I think listeners would be interested in that. Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the FBI has got an entire history of, uh, yes, infiltrating left-wing organizations, uh, of murdering, they murdered Fred Hampton from the Black Panthers, a whole series of funneling drugs into black communities, um, and uh, CSIS as well, and, uh, and um, the RCMP before have a whole tradition of infiltrating trade unions, they consider yeah they had lethal Overwatch against the Wet'suwet'en. They've uh, all all of these elements against working class people, against indigenous people, against black people, against socialists. Uh, in fact, they refuse to release the RCMP files on Tommy Douglas to this day. To this day, because in there is a whole series of sabotage and COINTELPRO. Tommy Douglas, for Christ's <laughs> sake, he's supposedly the greatest Canadian and they won't, re won't release it. Um, so it's, it's a huge mistake of the NDP to appeal to calling the Proud Boys terrorists because that will be used against workers, it'll be used against Indigenous and it'll be used against Black Lives Matter. Which sounds on, uh, you know, when you say it counterintuitive, but I, I hear you, I hear you. I remember back in the days um, we were producing a socialist uh, paper, and it turned out later that there was an RCMP agent working, uh, working with with us, pretending to be one of us, which didn't really much matter. We just wanted to get the paper out. <laughs> but as, long, <laughs> as long as he helped sell it, it's all good. Ben, weigh in on this. Uh, Proud Boys as terrorists. Well, I mean, to me, the grand irony was to see Bill Blair, of all people, at the podium announcing that this was going to happen. I mean, I, of course, remember Bill Blair from the G8 protests and the complete, like, police statification of Toronto being shaken down by cops just trying to get on a go bus to go visit my grandparents. Alex, I don't think mentioned the RCMP specifically, but the RCMP has collaborated in all of the things that he's mentioned. You know, I couldn't agree more. And, and this is why I'm very hesitant even to use the word terrorist, just because I'm not sure that it's 
particularly useful either in the domestic or the international context. I find it tends to shut people's brains down a little bit and justify focusing totally on a sort of enemy and just seeing people in them rather than the larger sort of structures that are producing them. And the, the way they might, that our efforts, again, as Alex mentioned, uh, might actually serve counterproductively to reinforce the conditions that are productive of these sorts of threats. Uh, and again, I couldn't agree more that the proper response to this is a popular one. I mean, I think as we talked about uh, in our episode about January 6th, the answer to the crowd that stormed the Capitol captured the streets this summer, right? Like the, this was a force that was far greater than the force that took the Capitol and could be used to meet them. But unfortunately, Biden is terrified of popular power. Yeah, uh, just to, to weigh in here, um, of course, as we know, uh, listeners of the show, the RCMP was formed to regulate the bodies of our indigenous and to herd them, you know, into reservations and to kill them, basically. Uh, I mean, that that's that was their uh, ideology. Um, to, to talk about the Capitol, uh, the Capitol protest or whatever it was, the coup attempt, um, although I guess that's giving them more credit than they're, than's due. Um, it was interesting. I just saw something about the breakdown of who these people were, because this is kind of this popular misconception, I think, that these were kind of workers, you know, like uh, your, you, you know, your average blue collar worker. Far from it. I mean, some of the, I mean, lots of cops, um, as Alex pointed out, but also um, real estate <laughs> developers and agents. This, you know, Ben, I think I think you mentioned it on a prior show the you know the, the the offspring of judges i mean there was this is petty bourgeois to use the term um you know uprising if there ever was one but um but yeah ben you might want to take this away a little bit because one of the topics i wanted to to get your in, input on is since biden what's happened since biden <laughs> yeah i think are you talking about the article that was published in the atlantic that had some demographic breakdown of, of january 6th yeah it could be one thing that was really interesting to me about that article, although I found it very useful and clarifying, was that they didn't actually quantify or discuss the large amount of participation by people affiliated with either the police or the armed services, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, again, shouldn't maybe be so surprising considering The Atlantic is edited by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's a former IDF prison guard and was like one of the big raw, raw Iraq war um, cheerleaders. Uh, But what's happened since Biden has come into power? I mean, I want to give him credit for something that's pretty big, which is a commitment to draw down forces from Yemen or to sort of draw down support for Saudi and United Arab Emirates intervention or just brutal disaster of a war in Yemen. So I guess that's good. But, you know, as far as the day to day goes, I've seen no effect like the COVID rate has remained high. There's discussion of a policy to send everyone uh, masks to their house as if access to masks is the problem. There's no discussion whatsoever of paying people to stay home. A big priority has been, again, reopening schools like it has been in Canada. UMass, where I'm at, they've basically set it up so that all of the first years have in-person classes. We just had our first week of the semester. Surprise, surprise, it's the number one week for new COVID cases since the pandemic started. And this is only the first week. Every one of those positive cases, I am sure, infected half of the residents also. I think it's going to be a disaster in the weeks to come. What's happening on immigration has been Biden has appointed a bunch of people to review immigration policies, again, against his commitment 
to immediately on day one by executive order reverse a lot of what Trump was doing at the border. Again, if he wanted to sort of highlight the cruelty of family separation, he could prosecute Stephen Miller, for example. That doesn't seem to be on the table. The roof checks now been negotiated down from $2,000 for in the first week to $1,400 maybe if you meet certain conditions, if you undergo a pretty humiliating means testing procedure. And this might happen in like a month. It feels like a state of constant crisis. Everyone that I know is kind of numb to it at this point, but doesn't cease to be staggered by it. It's not a good situation. <laughs> we were happy here, some of us were, that the pipeline was canceled. It had sort of a, a sidelight um, aspect to it, which showed Trudeau for being the non-green prime minister that he is, <laughs> that he argued against it. Um, but Alex, weigh in since Biden. Well, kids are still in cages. I think the facilities that they're in are now called something different, but they're still kids in cages. But Biden is normal capitalism as opposed to uh, Trump's capitalism. And But we shouldn't forget for a moment what created Trump was dissatisfaction with the capitalism of the Obama-Biden years. That Biden creates Trump. And if the left becomes associated with Biden, then if you're opposed to the status quo, you will have no choice but to go back to Trump or whatever Trump's inheritor is, because the the far right is not going anywhere. And they will be the anti-establishment alternative if the left isn't. So the left cannot have anything to do with Biden. We must fight them. Now, it's like, you know, do you want to be punched in the face? Well, no. Okay, your choice, be punched in the face or stabbed in the gut. Well, being punched in the face isn't as bad as being stabbed in the gut, so I guess I'll be punched in the face. No, the correct answer is neither. Neither. We cannot support uh, Biden. There needs to be. America leads an America, a socialist Labour Party, desperately, that they need to break from the Democrats. And, and I think that alternative would be very, very popular. Should build it now, should have built it yesterday, should have built it 10 years ago. But get it done. Otherwise, we're going to be facing another Trump movement. Um, There there are going to be huge fights under Biden. We shouldn't forget that Black Lives Matter uh, first appeared under Obama. And so there will be mass movements in the United States, I guarantee you. But it needs a political expression. Yeah. Ben, um, uh, a Democratic Socialist Party in the United States possible? Going to happen? Any moves? Um, There is one, but, you know, um, what's happening? It's difficult to say. Uh, I'm not tremendously optimistic in the short term, although, you know, the, the the need for it is pretty acute and establishment institutions are really teetering. And, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm not necessarily the best positioned person to know what's going to emerge as someone who's basically employed as a kind of bureaucrat devoted to the reproduction of the American middle or ruling class, you know, I don't think that the people working in the universities in Paris necessarily anticipated the revolution that was coming. Oh, come on now, just because you're an academic, you're not all bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I did think that this summer was extremely inspiring, but I think the problems are deeper than just with the party system in particular. 
but I think they cut to the core of the American political institutional system. And so I hesitate to pin my hopes on the emergence of a social democratic party that can operate within the institutional structures that currently exists. You want to sort of say, what about AOC? What about Bernie? You know, obviously they didn't get cabinet postings, but what if, you know, could they be the, could they be the germ that, you know, erupts into a whole uh, new movement? I think they missed their opportunity, to be honest. AOC capitulated in terms of uh, forcing a vote on single payer and and essentially has come into line with Nancy Pelosi. And and, and I don't think uh, Sanders is, he's not going to lead something out of the Democrats. And, And so I think while they could play a secondary role, I think the movement has passed them by, the moment has passed them by. And... They're really, the Democrats are a dead end. And there is so much pressure from below saying that, but it does need an organized expression. I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out or exactly when, but I, if when there is uh, that opportunity, I think it will, be, it, will, it will be explosive in its impact. You're listening to the Radical Reverend show here if you were wondering what was going on out there in listener land. And I've got Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back and Ben Nolan, his doctoral candidate at University of Massachusetts at Amherst in political science. Alex, I'm gonna throw this to you first. Uh, We're reopening schools and now uh, the Ford government's making noise about reopening, period. Um, uh, We we just discovered we have over a hundred variants. And of course we don't do enough testing or tracing, so we really probably don't know, but um, at least that we know of. So we know uh, at the rate that variants are um, reproducing themselves, according to one statistician I tend to to follow, um, it could be the major variant by the end of the month, even in February. And it certainly is in in the UK, and it certainly is in South Africa, where they both have their versions of variants. Um, So you're a parent, Alex, the kids are going back to school. What? What are you thinking? Well, it's like right-wing politicians and corporations are like children who do not understand the concept of delayed gratification. Like if we took the virus seriously, got the cases down to a level where it could be tracked and traced, like in New Zealand, like in Vietnam, country countries like that where they're managing it with track and trace, then Actually, the economy could get up and running sooner, but they 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 can't. Yeah, they they can't wait. They just want to reopen schools, re- reopen businesses, and in fact, they're spreading the pain. They're prolonging the pain. Uh, it's very very short sighted. And what about teachers and the union? Like this is unsafe work. Yeah. Well, the the union has been yeah mostly silent, mostly silent, and it, it's just. They're going to be reopened. Uh, it's going to be what ne- um, next Monday, Monday the sixteenth, or Tuesday the sixteenth, I think is uh, the the day for opening schools. In Britain, the teachers' union threatened to go on strike, and the government blinked and didn't reopen the schools. In Chicago, I, I don't know whether the strike started already, but uh, they're forcing the teachers in, and and uh, the teachers are going on strike. In Chicago, it can be done, but the the unions are totally silent. You know, 
the, the government is sitting on what two and a half, three billion dollars of money from the feds. That should go to half the class sizes. Class size is no bigger than 16. There needs to be mass testing, asymptomatic testing in schools. And that's the only way to reopen, right? And, and the case, general case level in society needs to be way lower. It's still, I think, cases today, well, there's still somewhere between one and 2,000 a day in Ontario. So this, this is way too high. And uh, we, we need to be getting it down, you know, less than 100, less than 50, so, and then hire thousands and thousands of, of tracers so we can uh, put down the embers. Yeah. Um, ben, maybe you could weigh in on, uh, uh, on the role of unions, just not only in schools, but throughout. I mean, I've, I've said this before on the show and with other panelists, um, if ever there was a time for a general strike, uh, it seems now. I mean, you've got from Amazon workers to now doing double shifts or something horrendous to, um, to teachers, to education workers, to beleaguered, you know, personal support workers and long-term care. I mean, uh, to, to everyone basically who's performing essential work, um, putting their lives on the line. Um, so why do we not see more strikes? Ben, any thoughts? I mean, one thing I've been thinking about, I, I had mentioned to you a couple of episodes ago that there's been a unionization drive at an Amazon facility in Alabama which gets reported on as if this is this great surprise, like Alabama all places. And it had me thinking about why it's not a facility in more sort of union dense areas like the Northeast or the Midwest. And it occurred to me that these are areas that are dominated again by democratic political establishments that while they might have a union leader on one shoulder whispering to them what they want to do, on the other shoulder, they have Amazon. And so there's a degree to which the higher ups of a lot of these big unions, especially in the States, but probably also in Canada, have been integrated into the government uh, administration to such an extent that they're hardly antagonistic to it. Or there's all kinds of fail-safes to keep them from being particularly antagonistic to it, which means that there are opportunities that are popping up in these unexpected places. I mean, where were the big teachers uprisings in the States a couple of years ago? They were in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arizona, not, you know, conventional democratic strongholds. And they turned out hundreds of thousands of people. It was really inspiring. And so I'm wondering if we need to sort of be critical of how cozy a lot of the union leadership has gotten in these more established areas with the sort of governing authorities. I heard uh, from one union activist here on the education front, we shall remain nameless, that he thought that the, the fear was that if they did go on strike in Ontario with a, such an anti-union government, uh, one that uh, repeatedly um, gives out misinformation about what's happening in the schools, um, that they'd simply move to privatizing and voucher systems and then just simply say, great, see ya, to, uh, uh, and that was the fear. Uh, to which my response was, I guess, you know, but that's even more of a reason to go on strike, right. you know, because that's your only real tool, you know, when it comes down to it. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, we got like a minute uh, or two left and so much more we could cover. Um, uh, just want to, you know, like throw out, uh, because we talked about in the first half of the show, this defunding the police, um, uh, 
call, which is the major call from Black Lives Matter. And uh, there's still fear around the words, although there's some pilot projects happening. There's one in Toronto that just got voted on, very small in, in one part of the city, but at least where mental health uh, workers can be called rather than police for mental health calls. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, any successes? I mean, in the States, actually, there seem to be more successes on that front than there are in Canada. Ben? Yeah, I mean, there's been some efforts at, uh, at universities and some municipalities. I think there's been some progress in Minneapolis. I'm not sure how permanent these changes are going to be or whether they're just waiting for people to be paying attention a little bit less to then just ramp everything back up. And the overwhelming consensus within the sort of beating heart of the Democratic Party is the defund the police as a slogan was bad and was why the election was as close as it was and led to a bunch of blue dog Democrats losing their seats in Congress. None of these claims have any particular basis, in fact, uh, and can be refuted by looking at any of the number of pro-defund politicians who did extremely well and who actually turned out people that ended up tipping the balance. I'm thinking of like Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilhan Omar, who turned out boots on the ground to win Minnesota and Michigan for Biden decisively. So, you know, I'm not particularly optimistic, and I think we need to think critically about whether this slogan is going to have the legs that we hope that it did. Although, you know, absolutely the belief should be defunded. It's, it's, it's ludicrous how much of society's resources goes into the militarization of these institutions. Alex, last words. Well, I think it's good that police have been taken out of welfare checks in uh, Toronto. But we have to understand the police cannot be reformed. They are built to defend capitalism. And if you want to get rid of the racist police, you have to get rid of the racist capitalism. And you have to fight for socialism. And, and I, think, I think that's the movement has got to be tied to a socialist perspective, uh, a society run by working class people where security uh, is, is organized by and from working class people and working class organizations. Well, on that note, we'll give it a wrap here on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much, Alex Grant from Fight Back and Ben Nolan, University of Massachusetts Amherst for weighing in. Till next time on the Radical Reverend Show. Mm-hmm.